Welcome to the New Life Baptist Podcast. Our mission is to love the Great Commandment, live the Great Commission, and lead one more to Jesus Christ. We thank you for listening, and we hope that you are encouraged today as we dive into God's Word. There's new life in this room tonight, isn't there? That's what Jesus does. I'm so glad to be back with you guys this evening and for the next four nights together as we seek to get more of Jesus. There was a young preacher in England a long time ago, and he was preaching in front of a longtime mentor, a man with whom he honored greatly. And this young preacher wanted to impress much and do his best and put all the work into his sermon. Afterwards, he preached his guts out, sweated gallons upon gallons, much like I did this morning all over this altar, and uh, he came face to face with his mentor. He said, how did I do? Uh, what do you think of my sermon? He said, well, it was a very poor sermon. It dejected immediately. The young man said, but I, I put so much study into that sermon. He says, I have no doubt you did. He says, but didn't you find my arguments conclusive? Absolutely. Didn't you find my metaphors and my analogies to, to connect? I absolutely did. Well, then I don't understand why you could say it was a poor sermon. He said, because, young man, there was no mention of Christ. And he said, well, Christ wasn't in the text. The old man took a moment and he said, wouldn't you agree that from every town and every village across England, there's a road to London. He said, well, I have no doubt. Yes, sir. He said, in much the same way, every text points to Christ. And every night we gather, I want to encourage you, New Life. We're going to make much of Jesus. Because as we'll find tonight in this text, Jesus is the most precious thing we have. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians again, same chapter. This morning, if you were not with us, we were in verses 15 through 20 looking at the nature of who Jesus truly is, that he's supreme, he's deserving of our hearts because he's supreme, he's the highest rank in all the heavens and beyond, and because of who he is, he mandates a worship that he's rightfully deserving of. But I want to jump forward just a few verses tonight. And I'm going to read for us Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 and 29. I want to make mention before I read that we're going to pull quite a bit from the surrounding context as well as in chapter 2. So you can have a finger over there as well. But if you're able, I'd like to invite you to stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. The Bible says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. 
to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is God's word. Amen? Amen. You can be seated. To get a better grasp on the text, it's going to actually help us to examine the surrounding context. I'll remind you of what I said this morning that my professor told me. It's the only thing I remember from that class. Every text without a context is a pretext for a proof text, meaning the best way for us to interpret God's word is with God's word. We don't want to pick a text and make it say what we want it to say. We want God's word to show us what God's word says. And the best way for us to do that is to examine what's happening in the passage around the one that we're reading. How does that fall into the larger context of the overall book? How does that book fit into the context of the New Testament? How does that New Testament fit into God's grand design of all of Scripture? And so to look at the surrounding context will be pivotal, but we're actually going to work backwards within the passage. I think right off the bat, one of the things that we notice, one of these pivotal verses that jumps out at us is this idea of rejoicing and suffering, which feels like a pause moment to think to ourselves, wait, rejoice and suffering? That doesn't make a lot of sense. How is that possible? Well, we're not going to walk verse by verse like this morning. We're going to work backwards within the text, and we're going to actually end at that portion of the passage. And I actually want to begin tonight by making my first observation in the text, and that's this. Jesus is the most precious. The most precious. How precious? Well, if you just look a few verses later in chapter 2, you'll find in verse 2 it says, Jesus is the knowledge of God's mystery. He's the riches of full assurance. Look at the next verse. In verse 3, you'll see he's the treasures of all wisdom and knowledge. That's how precious he is. The truth that he's the most precious isn't just found in this chapter. It's echoed throughout the entire book. In chapter 3, verse 4, it says that when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In other words, new life. Christ doesn't just give life. He is life. That's how precious he is. And the truth that Jesus is the most precious it's also consistent with the rest of the New Testament. John says in chapter 14 that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the what, church? The life. And he's so precious, the Bible says, he's the only way to God. The truth that Jesus is most precious permeates the entire Old Testament as well. The psalmist declares in chapter 145, verses 5 and 7, I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare of your greatness. 
They shall utter the memory of your great goodness. They will sing of your righteousness. Last year, about a year and a half ago, I had the privilege of doing premarital counseling for a young couple eager for their wedding day. For more than one reason, as I'm sure you can imagine. In the process, a young man named Sam, who you're going to see pictured behind me with his fiance. Sam and Gabby. Gabby was a former student in my youth ministry who wanted her former youth pastor to perform the wedding. I didn't know Sam. And so I wanted to connect with them before the wedding, have a few sessions together and talk about Christ and the purpose of marriage. But in the process, I came to find that Sam was broken. And after our first meeting, the Lord crushed him. It was God's kindness to crush him. Romans says it's God's kindness that leads men to repentance. That night, God broke Sam in tears and he gave his life to Jesus. A week before their wedding, I had the privilege of baptizing Sam. You'll see a picture of that moment. Jesus is clearly the most precious thing in Sam's life. So much so, he could not rightfully get married until he declared to the world his allegiance to Jesus. A week later, I had the joy of officiating his wedding. The night before the wedding, after the rehearsal dinner, Sam walked me to my car. He stopped, and he just began to weep at the very mention of the name of Jesus. In thinking through his lineup of the groomsmen that he had chosen for the next day, the biggest day of his life, he said he was sad for all of them because he wanted them to know Jesus like he does, and they don't. When speaking of his groomsmen, Sam said, and I quote, I wish I would have chosen better friends for this moment. Don't miss this. Jesus is so precious to Sam that he affects his friendships. So precious to Sam that he affects his marriage. That Sam needed to get baptized before he entered into a union with Gabby. So precious to Sam that he drove from Oklahoma at dawn on a Sunday morning to get to service in South Dallas in time to be baptized. I think all of us need to take a hard look at our life and ask this question. Is Jesus the most precious thing to me? That's what we want for you. Jesus wants to be the most precious thing to you. He was so precious to a couple in my church, they recently gifted a minivan to somebody in need with a growing family. Jesus is so precious to some of the people in your church that they're willing to write scholarship checks to send kids to camp, to sow seeds in the next generation of disciples. Jesus was precious enough to my pastor in November of 2016 to tell me some hard truths. He looked at me across the table at a taco casa of all places. It's just Toilet and a $6 meal is the best way I can describe it. <laughs> he looked at me in the eyes and he said, Jeff, you've made the mistake of making your ministry 
more important than your marriage. And it crushed me. Let me ask you, is Jesus precious enough to you to speak the truth in love to someone else? Is Jesus, if he's just the box to check off because we came to church for the week, hear me out, then he's not the most precious thing to you. I think the critical question for our generation, and, and for every generation for that matter, was posed by a pastor and author by the name of John Piper who wrote the following. He said, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth, you could have heaven with all the food you ever liked, all the hobbies you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you've ever seen, all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted. That includes Chick-fil-A. If you could have heaven with no human conflict, no natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ weren't there? If your answer to this question is anything other than an unequivocal no, then Jesus is not the most precious thing to you. Jesus is most precious, though. And now Paul the Apostle is telling us through the book of Colossians, that not only is he the most precious, but guess what? You are now also a steward of what's most precious. Look at chapter 1 with me, verse 25. The stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Okay? So to receive something on behalf of someone else makes you a steward. Not sure how attuned we are to pop culture, but I remember famous pop artist Justin Timberlake hosted the ESPY Awards one year, and Tiger Woods was set to receive Best Male Athlete of the Year. However, Tiger wasn't able to attend the ceremony, so the producers thought long and hard about which athlete would best represent Tiger in his place. None other than actor and comedian Will Ferrell. Didn't really go together very well, but what he did was he received the trophy on his behalf. He not only received the trophy, but he gave a very memorable speech that I'm sure made a lot of people laugh. To steward something is to take care of something that's been given to you. Look at how the Bible describes what it means to steward in verse 29. For this I toil. To toil is to work extremely hard. In other words, stewarding is hard work. That's why Paul compares it to a struggle. Stewarding is a lot like struggling. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. You know a variation of the word toil or struggle is used more than 15 times in the New Testament, 11 of which come from Paul alone. The first word of encouragement from Jesus to the churches in the book of Revelation went to the church at Ephesus. Do you remember what Jesus praised them for? Jesus praised the church for their toil. They worked hard to advance the kingdom of God. 
So if we're a steward and we're to toil, how do we do that? What does it look like to toil? I'm glad you asked me. If Christ is most precious and you're called to steward Christ, who is the most precious, then how do you steward him? Well, the answer is twofold. And first, you steward what's most precious by speaking. Speaking to others can be scary. Some of you were built for speaking. Some of you probably have friends who would share the gospel with a tree. If you can't picture who that friend is, it's probably you. Some of you would just come so naturally talk about Jesus with somebody else. You go to Subway and order a foot long. You're sitting there looking at that thing. You got a friend who would look at the worker and say, hey man, you think that sandwich could feed 5,000 people? It's like, what are we talking about? Oh, dude, let me tell you, it's possible, right? Some of you, it just comes so natural in conversation, right? For others of you, it doesn't come as easy. I'll never forget that the day that I thought I was finally about to become a man. I was 12 years old. It was my first school dance. School didn't want to call it a dance. They want to use the word social. We all knew what it was. But it was a middle school dance, and we know how those go. And if you don't remember, let me refresh your memory. The girls are on that side of the room, and the guys are on this side of the room. And the objective of the species over here that I identify with is to see who has the most guts to get as close to that side of the room as possible before the night comes to a conclusion. And everybody knows at the end of the night, when all the fun, upbeat songs are over, they play one last song. Which one is it? It's that slow song. Mariah Carey. <laughs> You'll always be my baby. And the song came on. I was ready for my moment. Her name was Melissa. All my friends were hyping me up like it was the tunnel of the Super Bowl. And I'm like, this is my moment. I'm going to go down in history. And I start walking across the stage. And there's this walk that men get sometimes when they're confident, but they're super nervous. Or they're trying to portray confidence. And I call it the Will Smith walk because like one of your legs goes dead. And you just kind of drag your leg across the gym like this. And ladies will never understand this. Girls in the room, you just don't know this, but guys have to go through the gauntlet in this moment because we're not just speaking to you, we're speaking to the army of your friends. And in that moment, I have to muster up the courage to ask her, Melissa, would you like to dance with me? And she has the nerve to say, what'd you say? <laughs> now here's the deal. She knows good and well what I said. She wanted me to repeat it louder so all her friends could share in the joy of that moment together. I'm like, this is my last time. Melissa, would you like to dance? Nobody, I mean nobody, prepared me for what happened next. She said yes. <laughs> I was so elated, I turned around and walked off to the middle of the dance floor. I wasn't leaving her, but nobody coached me on what you're supposed to do. 
everything in my life was building up to that moment to have to speak the words, to have to ask the question, Melissa, would you like to dance? No one taught me what happens next. They didn't teach me, you guide her hand out to the, to the middle of the dance floor. And I'm mortified thinking, did I just leave her back with her friends? What do I do? I turned around, boom, she was there. <laughs> now, now it's just figuring out what to do. Because no one taught me what to do with this either. So I just did what felt natural, put my hands around her neck. <laughs> now, I'm looking past her at all my friends who are dying laughing, making fun of me. Because I realize that's not where my hands are supposed to go. That's too high. But then I realize that's too low. So I've got to find a good middle ground <laughs> that leaves room for the Holy Spirit. And when we find it, we're clicking. And we're right here, and I'm looking into her eyes, and I hear the refrain of that song in the gym, you'll always be my baby. And I thought, I'm going to marry this girl. <laughs> and she dumped me the next day for a guy named Colin. So anyway, at the end of the day, what I'm trying to say is I think we all empathize, uh, uh, empathize greatly with moments in our life where we have to speak. Some of you, it's, a, it's, it's, it's speech class. You have to give a presentation at work. Uh, others of you, especially when it comes to the gospel, it doesn't come is natural. But we have to speak about him. Look at verse 28. Him we proclaim. How do we proclaim? Well, he says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Back in verse 25, Paul says he stewards what God gave him by doing what? Making the word of God known. In the book of Philippians, he went as far to say, it doesn't matter if you preach Christ from false motives or true. As long as Christ is preached, I will rejoice. <laughs> yeah, the gospel is preached from this stage week in and week out. Praise the Lord. It's, it's proclaimed in your life groups. In your community, we love that. But let me ask you this. What about your sphere of influence? The Bible says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Newsflash, people need Jesus. But God wants to use you to speak the good news into their life. And the book of Romans is clear in chapter 10. People can't hear if no one speaks up. Because faith comes through hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. Guys, your words matter. Listen to the words of famed magician and atheist, Penn Gillette, from the famous Vegas magician duo, Penn and Teller. Keep in mind, Penn Gillette is an atheist who said the following, I've always said I don't respect people who don't evangelize. I don't respect that at all. You believe there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell and not receiving eternal life. And you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make things socially awkward? How much do you have to hate somebody not to evangelize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? We are to steward what's most precious by speaking of Jesus. You steward what's most precious by speaking, and finally, church, you steward what's most precious 
by suffering. That's where we're going to finish today. We've landed back at verse 24, that odd language where he explicitly says he rejoiced in his sufferings. I mean, let's be real. Come on. From a secularist perspective, what he's saying is incomprehensible. But the Bible doesn't deviate from this pattern. Romans 5 speaks of rejoicing and tribulation. 1 Peter 4 says to suffer and rejoice. Acts chapter 5, the apostles rejoiced that they were even counted worthy to suffer in the first place. Why? Because Paul's sufferings aren't some obstacle for his ministry. They're a tool for his success. It's because Jesus is so precious that Paul can rejoice in the suffering. That's why Paul tells the church of Philippians in chapter 1, it's been granted on your behalf that you not only believe in him, but that you get to suffer for his sake. And suffering brought a lot of good to the church. Look at the end of verse 24 with me. Suffering is for the sake of the body, the church. And without Paul's willingness to suffer, there would have been no church in Asia. I mean, to better understand Paul's suffering, just go, go read 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It lists the catalog of miseries that he had to endure just to get the gospel to Asia. The church benefits in the sufferings of others. This is why very often the suffering of a brother or sister in Christ is a great source of blessing to the church. This passage is very clear. Suffering is for the sake of the body of Christ. Notice, he's not highlighting the personal benefits of suffering. He's highlighting the communal benefits, which begs the question, are you suffering in community? Are you plugged into a life group? Are you made known? Are you walking in vulnerability so that others get the blessing of sitting with you in your suffering. If you're not, I want to plead with you to join a life group because your suffering is going to make Jesus very real to the people around you. When you suffer for the sake of Jesus, hear me out, it's always for the sake of others. The Bible is teaching us something beautiful about the relationship between Christ and the church. If you want to sit with Jesus then suffer with others. God's going to use your suffering to make Jesus very real in the lives of other people. And one of the people I see this beautifully reflected in is one of my mentors, a shepherd in my life, a spiritual father. His name's Kevin Hill. And his sufferings have made Jesus so real to me. Kevin sees the sufferings of Jesus in his life as a great gift. He has a special needs child whom you'll see in a picture behind me here in a moment. His name is Grant. This is Grant's diagnosis. Grant's 25 years old and he has severe autism. But he operates at about a three-year-old level developmentally. He has cerebral palsy. His fine motor skills are greatly affected, so much so he can't walk on his own. Grant can't speak. He also has cortical blindness. 
Grant has epilepsy. He has seizures every night, at least two to three every night for the last 25 years. Kevin and his sweet wife, Elizabeth, have to get up and check on Grant to make sure he's okay and breathing. Grant requires 24-7 care around the clock. He needs full assistance to be fed, clothed, and bathed. And through all of it, listen to Kevin's response when I asked him about it. Grant is the sweetest person I've ever met. He's the toughest person I've ever met. He's an absolute joy to spend my life with. He's changed me in so many ways I can't even fathom. And if I had to do it all over again, I'd say yes in a heartbeat. This relationship for Kevin has been one of God's sweetest reminders in his life of how suffering draws him into deeper union with Christ. Even when you can't see it, suffering does for others what the best sermon can't. My wife Sarah lost her mom to brain cancer at the age of 12. The suffering of Jesus can sustain a 12-year-old who's motherless. Her suffering matters. When I think about Corey Ten Boom, only the sufferings of Christ can make a Nazi concentration camp survivable. Her suffering matters. I'll never forget the first time in ministry when my abstract view of suffering became a little more concrete. When my formal understanding of what it looked like became a little more functional. I was called away from my family that late night on Christmas Eve to the emergency room. Because a car went off the road and ran over a student. Staring into the eyes of a helpless father. I saw a man desperately trying to figure out how to move on after his son's funeral. The sufferings of Jesus are so deep. They can sustain a person through the loss of their own child. If you want to curl up into the lap of Jesus, just crawl down into the hole of suffering with somebody else. One time I arrived to the home of a student whose father had just taken his own life in the backyard. Jesus became more real to that boy and his mom than ever before. Their suffering matters. There might be couples who are currently struggling to get pregnant. If that's you, can I just say it's the sufferings of Jesus that can sustain a barren womb. Your suffering matters. It was October 18th, 2019. My youngest daughter's birthday. So I did what any dad would do who cares about the health of his child. I got her donuts. 
There's a picture of Stella three years ago at her birthday that morning getting her precious donuts. Her older sister missed out because she had to go to school. She was pretty upset, so she came home from school. She wanted to join the celebration, so later that night I redeemed myself and my health choices, and I took both of them to get ice cream. They were elated because the next day was their joint birthday party. You see, their birthdays are only like four to five days apart. The oldest is exactly two years older, but the birthday is almost on the same day. So we tell them it's extra special, but really we're just trying to save money to only have one party. But this year was going to be special because the birthday party was going to be at the Shadow Creek Pumpkin Farm. It was an extravaganza for kids in our community. They could not wait because all their friends and all of our friends and their kids were going to be there the next morning on Saturday. Well, late that Friday night, our family had an emergency. Sarah miscarried the child in her womb. We were discharged at dawn, the morning of our daughter's birthday party. Sarah couldn't even go. It was like her flesh was splitting in two. Then she had to live with the guilt of not even being able to attend her own daughter's birthday party. I had to go alone and relive it over and over every time somebody asked me, where's Sarah? My heart felt like it was being ripped out. But let me tell you something. It was in that season of suffering that brought us into such deeper union with Christ. Your sufferings aren't some chasm between you and God. They're a catalyst toward him. And I think as we kick the week off in hopes of getting more of Jesus, some of us are in a place where maybe you just feel like you're going through the motions or you're trying to get through the day on your own or you're never gonna be able to let go of this season that you're in because for you, your joy is contingent on your circumstances. And Jesus is here tonight to tell you your joy is in Christ. But, but I think there's an opportunity to be had here tonight to invite the body of Christ into this moment together. Because remember, your sufferings or a source of great blessing to the brothers and sisters around you. We thank you for listening. Be sure to click the subscribe button on this podcast so you don't miss out on any and all of our future content. We pray you were encouraged by the word of God today. If you feel that the Lord is leading you to make a decision or have questions, you can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, or at our website at newlifebaptist.faith.